Good afternoon, and welcome to the Cato Institute. Uh, my name is Julian Sanchez, and I'm a research fellow here, and it is my pleasure to welcome you for a discussion of uh, what I think is an extraordinarily important topic, uh, the surveillance iceberg, the growth of effectively unaccountable uh, surveillance of Americans by government agencies, uh, as perhaps most dramatically exemplified uh, by programmatic surveillance under the FISA Amendments Act of 2008. Um, it's a truism of the information age that knowledge is power, uh, but here at Cato, we try to always be uh, very cognizant of Lord Acton's famous warning about what it is that power tends to do. Uh, the history of the American intelligence community, unfortunately, uh, demonstrates all too clearly that, at least in government hands, uh, data tends to corrupt and massive databases corrupt massively. In the decades prior to the passage of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act of 1978, the FBI and other government agencies systematically and illegally spied on uh, American anti-war activists, legislators, Supreme Court justices, political advisors, uh, members of Congress, at least one first lady, and civil rights leaders, including perhaps most notoriously uh, the Reverend Martin Luther King, who the Bureau hoped could be discredited and replaced by what it termed the right kind of Negro leader uh, who would be co covertly answerable to the Bureau. Um, all of this information uh, did not see the inside of a court where its legality might be questioned, but was instead deployed via selective targeted leaks of information uh, to friendly politicians and journalists, effectively escaping any kind of real public accountability. As these abuses began to come to light, thanks to the investigative work of the Church Commission in the uh, 1970s, Congress began to realize that the corrupting power of surveillance uh, required the counterbalancing force of oversight, which for the linguists in the audience is actually the same word from a Germanic rather than a, a French root. Uh, oversight, first and foremost by judges, but also by Congress, and to the extent possible, because surveillance must often be secret, uh, by the public. Um, in the aftermath of the terror attacks of 9-11, uh, and the fear that that generated, much as the Cold War provided the context for the surveillance abuses of the 60s and 70s, uh, those checks and that public accountability began to be eroded, again, famously, uh, in part due to the warrantless wiretapping program uh, authorized by President Bush and now its successor, the uh, legalized version, the FISA Amendments Act of 2008, which uh, permits the NSA to engage in programmatic surveillance of international communications without the individualized warrants traditionally required for wire surveillance uh, involving American citizens within the United States. Uh, and a lot of different factors have contributed to that erosion. Uh, partly, of course, it is uh, the fear that uh, without flexibility uh, and, uh, and rapid action unencumbered by niceties like judicial oversight, uh, American intelligence agents won't be able to respond sufficiently quickly to the threat of terror. Part of it's technological change. Uh, partly just the mass volume of billions of communications every day that these intelligence agencies are trying to filter and sift through, um, but also the way technological change has enabled new kinds of surveillance that don't trigger 
the traditional statutory reporting or warrant requirements. Uh, so we think of things like uh, you know, surveillance of stored electronic records, which doesn't trigger the same requirements or reporting as traditional phone wiretaps. There's a, a big, thick, data-rich report every year on criminal wiretaps that's produced by the Administrative Office of the U.S. Courts. Um, there's a much, much shorter public report that the Justice Department issues on secret FISA surveillance. Uh, but then there are all the vast quantities of other kind of information gathering about which we know almost nothing. And that includes uh, surveillance under the FISA Amendments Act, where the NSA and the Justice Department have refused to tell even Congress how many Americans have been swept into its vast databases. And those databases are growing ever larger. We know that in Utah, uh, a massive data storage facility is being constructed that uh, many former NSA officials, including uh, Thomas Frake, who I'm honored to uh, say is in the audience today, um, have said could be used to store effectively the total volume of uh, international uh, data communications. Um, you know, the scale itself is a barrier to meaningful oversight. Um, you know, the FBI alone has literally centuries of just backlogged FISA records, and the NSA has much more. Uh, the Director of National Intelligence, James Clapper, has said that really the only entity with full visibility in all the government's uh, special access intelligence programs is God. Um, and what we have, unfortunately, instead, uh, uh, you know, in terms of any kind of active intervention, uh, is Congress. And another factor here is just the lack of will on the part of Congress to expend energy and political capital monitoring and exposing problems with secret surveillance, given uh, you know, the very limited access they have and the limited cleared staff they have who are knowledgeable enough to make sense of what's going on. Uh, I think the attitude, especially in an election year, uh, of many congressional overseers is exemplified by uh, a comment of Senator Leverett Saltonstall uh, in 1956. Uh, he said the issue wasn't so much uh, the reluctance of the intelligence agencies to talk with Congress, uh, but, as he put it, our reluctance to seek information and knowledge on subjects which I personally, as a member of Congress and as a citizen, would rather not have. Uh, we are fortunate to have a radically different attitude represented in Congress um, in the person of uh, Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon. Uh, Senator uh, since 1996 and before that, uh, a member of the House of Representatives from Oregon uh, since 1981, in his uh, position on the Senate Intelligence Committee, has uh, been an absolutely key figure in pressing for answers about the explosion of location tracking surveillance using cell phones and incredibly popular new technology utilized by both law enforcement and intelligence. Um, on a possibly unrelated note, um, and possibly not, he's been pivotal in pressing for answers about secret interpretations of Patriot Act powers, uh, such as Section 215, which he said are being used uh, in ways that an ordinary citizen would not predict based on the text of the statute itself. Uh, and governed by essentially secret law, classified opinions of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. Uh, and, of course, again, he has been pivotal in pressing for answers that many of his colleagues seem uninterested in asking for about the use of large-scale surveillance of international communications of Americans under the Foreign Intelligence uh, Surveillance Act amendments of 2008. So I am really delighted to welcome uh, Senator Ron Wyden. Thank you.
opening thank you and uh, unquestionably an inflationary introduction. And I, I thank you uh, for it. Uh, suffice it to say, uh, Cato is the place to be if you're a serious privacy hawk and you want to have discussions about these important issues. And so, Julian, I really appreciate uh, you're having me for this program, and I think obviously with Eric and, uh, and Michelle, you've got two veterans of the surveillance um, discussions as well, and I think you're gonna have a good um, program. Let me, if I might, because we've got votes coming up, give you my sense of, of where things are for a few minutes, and uh, then I told Julian we'll throw it open to questions. Softball questions are always especially welcome uh, at this point in the congressional calendar, but let's talk a little bit about you know, where things are, and particularly the events of last week. To me, the importance of the events of last week are essentially twofold. The first is, last week was the first instance where the government has admitted that there is a violation of Fourth Amendment of privacy rights that has taken place. That's essentially the first you know, significant news from last week. The second part of those news is this is the first time that the government has stated that the FISA court has reached the judgment that the uh, spirit of the FISA Amendments Act has also been violated. So these were the important findings, in my view, of last week. They came about largely because I asked the intelligence community to declassify statements that I believed were true. I asked them in a classified way, so you get a sense of how sensitive and arduous the task is to constantly push these efforts to declassify documents and have some transparency and have some accountability is. So I submitted them in classified form, I ask that they be declassified, and the two statements that I've given you reflect essentially what the government uh, was willing to declassify that for the first time uh, they've admitted there's been a violation of the Fourth Amendment uh, constitutional uh, right to privacy, and also for the first time they have said that in their view, uh, what the FISA court has stated that the FISA Amendments Act, the spirit of the law, has also been uh, violated as well. So this, in my view, sets the backdrop now for an important debate that I hope is going to take place in the fall, and I'm going to do everything I can to advance in the fall. The FISA Amendments Act, as all of you know, is up for reauthorization in the fall. I have put a public hold on the bill. It is my uh, long-standing policy. Actually, Senator Grassley and I authored the proposal, which eventually became law requiring that senators who put holds do it publicly. But even before that, it was my long-standing po uh, policy to announce that I was uh, putting a public hold on a piece of legislation I felt strongly about. I have done that with respect to the FISA Amendments Act. And with that, there will be an opportunity for a real debate in the fall. And I think the two uh, disclosures that I've cited that were made last week, I think sort of sets the table for a different kind of debate. 
Uh, I can just tell you from the standpoint of putting my cards on the table as, as we uh, begin, I think before this law is reauthorized, the public ought to be able to see more information about its impact on the privacy rights of law-abiding Americans, one, and I think protections for the privacy rights of law-abiding Americans needs uh, to be strengthened. So that's sort of how I come to this in terms of what I'm working on as it relates to what will be on the floor in the fall and the backdrop of what happened last week. Now, let's spend a couple of minutes so that everybody at least is uh, square in terms of what the background is here and how we got into uh, this place. As you all know, if a law enforcement uh, agency has a compelling, a compelling uh, bit of evidence that an American is a serious uh, criminal, the officers go uh, to a judge to get a warrant to tap that individual's uh, phone. And anybody who watches The Wire or NCIS, you kind of got a pretty good idea already of how all that works. Now, what people sometimes forget is that the police officers on these shows and, of course, in real life, are building on something that the Founding Fathers thought was sacred ground, and that was the Fourth uh, Amendment, what uh, was a bedrock uh, you know, principle that the government couldn't violate Americans' privacy with unreasonable searches and seizures. So in effect, if you wanted to get a warrant to search somebody's house, you had to show a judge. You had to show a judge that there was probable cause that you would, after the search, find evidence of a crime. Pretty brilliant concept. As usual, Founding Fathers got it pretty much right because it simultaneously protects individual uh, privacy while at the same time saying to the government, you know, when you believe that there is evidence to believe that uh, a criminal is engaging in something that threatens public safety, the government's in a position to have a process uh, to proceed. Now, to me, the next part of the discussion starts really in the uh, 70s with Congress passing a law to govern wire, govern wiretapping for intelligence purposes. That, of course, was the FISA legislation that allowed the government to get a warrant for somebody if there was evidence that that person was a spy or a member of an international terrorist group, even if they had not committed a crime as yet. It was based pretty much on the same concepts of warrants, probable cause, and it, of course, uh, continues to be used today. After 9-11, the Bush administration decided that it needed additional surveillance authorities. They said, we've got to have additional surveillance authorities beyond what is in the FISA statute. Now, unfortunately, instead of asking the Congress to change the law, the Bush administration came up with a warrantless wiretapping program that as we've come to know, operated in secret for a number of years. This, of course, like everything else, as I constantly tell my colleagues, eventually becomes public, and there was a huge uproar. And many of my constituents certainly were livid when they learned about the warrantless wiretapping you know, program, as were people on the Hill. So at that point, there was a pretty passionate you know, debate Congress passed the FISA Amendments Act of 2008, 
That replaced the warrantless wiretapping program with new authorities for the government to collect the phone calls and emails of those who were believed to be foreigners uh, outside the United States. The centerpiece of that act, and a big part of my concern, is a provision that has come to be known as Section 702 of the FISA statute. That's the provision that gave the government the new authorities to collect the communications of people who are believed to be foreigners outside the United States. And unlike the traditional FISA authorities and unlike the wiretapping authorities, it did not involve requiring that law enforcement and intelligence uh, officials obtain individual warrants. For this reason, it contains language, language that is specifically intended to limit the government's ability to use these authorities to deliberately spy on law-abiding Americans. Congress also put an expiration date on these new authorities. That was designed to make sure that there would be ongoing and continuous review. And of course, that next expiration date is December 2012, which is why I have put this hold on the legislation that has passed out of the Intelligence uh, Committee and will be debated uh, undoubtedly in the fall. So when Congress comes back in the fall, the question is going to be, should the FISA Amendments Act be renewed as it stands, or is it appropriate to make reforms? And Senator Mark Udall, another strong privacy supporter on the committee, we tried to, in effect, kickstart the debate last summer, asking questions uh, about the law's impact on the privacy of Americans. In particular, Senator Udall and I focused on the fact that since 702 was targeted at people outside the United States, it was our argument that it was important for Congress and the public to get an understanding, really a rough understanding, of approximately how many people inside the United States have had their private communications collected under the authorities. And my sense is it's not hard to figure out you know, what the issue is. If only a handful of people inside the United States have had their phone calls and uh, emails collected under Section 702, then I think Americans walk away and say there's not a substantial question of their privacy rights uh, being in jeopardy. On the other hand, if a large number of people inside uh, our country have had their communications collected and reviewed under the statute, then I think people are going to walk away and say, hey, I'll hold on here. Maybe this is a law that needs to be reformed and protections for the privacy rights of Americans ought to be strengthened. So after that, really in last July, Senator Udall and I wrote to the Director of National Intelligence and we said we'd like an estimate we would like an estimate of the number of Americans who've had their phone calls and emails collected by our government under these new authorities. And the response we got, and I'll quote here, is it's not reasonably possible to identify the number of people located in the United States whose communications may have been reviewed under the authority, under the authority of 
FISA. So you can probably imagine Senator Udall and I didn't think that was a particularly helpful you know, response. We made it clear that we were not after a precise count of how many people have had their privacy impacted by 702, but that it ought to be possible to at least get a rough estimate of how big this number is. So last month, in what is really one of the more remarkable statements I've heard in my time in public service, the leadership of the NSA said that trying to come up with this estimate would in itself violate the privacy of US persons. <laughs> now, you kind of scratch your head and you know, you remember the days when people said to save the village, you had to destroy it, and that sort of thing. But even by Washington Alice in Wonderland standards, this seems kind of far-fetched. How exactly does it violate privacy rights to give a ballpark estimate of how many people have had their communications swept up in that? So I've been pretty outspoken about my saying, I don't think that passes the smell test, and we are going to press for more transparency on this point, and I hope we'll be able to persuade intelligence officials that more needs to be uh, shared with the public and to expect Americans to say that even a ballpark you know, estimate, a ballpark estimate of how many have had their communications you know, swept up somehow is an offensive violation of individual privacy, that that is just too far-fetched, even by Washington kinds of standards. Now, let me be clear. If there is no estimate of how many Americans have had their communications collected uh, under the law, it's possible that the number could be quite large. I mean, that would make the case why you need to have strong rules to protect the privacy of our people. Unfortunately, we're not able to make that judgment now because we don't have that number. So, you know, when you don't have it, you can say, well, looks like if it's very large, that suggests that the laws are inadequate to protect people's, you know, uh, privacy. And yet, if you don't have it, you're really <coughs> sort of stuck in in place trying to figure out uh, how to proceed. In addition, um, there is a, another concern that we have about a loophole in the law that can allow the government to effectively conduct warrantless searches for phone calls or emails of a particular American. And let me explain how this works. And again, it's because of the wording of the statute. No one can say whether it's been done or not, it involves the wording of the statute, which our plain reading of it says it could uh, be happening. All of the communications collected under Section 702 are collected without individual warrants because this authority was intended to be used to target uh, foreigners outside the country. But if the government wants to search through all of the communications that it has collected under Section 702, 
in an effort to find the communications of a particular American citizen, there is no requirement to get a warrant to do that. That is the plain reading of Section 702. There is no requirement in the law to get a warrant to do that. In my view, searching through warrantless, warrantlessly collected communications in an effort to find the phone calls or emails of a specific American, in effect, would be a backdoor warrantless search of that American's communication. I don't believe the law ought to allow this, and I think the backdoor searches loophole ought to be closed, and I'm going to do everything I can in the FISA Amer amendments reauthorization this fall to close that loophole. Now, I think it's fair to say not everybody uh, in the United States Senate agrees with me at this time. The Senate Intelligence Committee said in a report last month, and I quote, the Department of Justice and the intelligence community reaffirmed that any queries made of Section 702 will be conducted in strict compliance with applicable guidelines and procedures and do not provide a means to circumvent the general requirement to obtain a court order before targeting a U.S. person under FISA. I, as you might guess, disagree with the Department of Justice and the intelligence community on that point. In my uh, judgment, backdoor searches of this nature would absolutely circumvent the traditional warrant requirements laid out in other parts of the law and certainly in the Fourth Amendment. I want to be clear. If the government has clear evidence, if an American is engaged in terrorism, espionage, or serious crime, I think the government ought to be able to read that person's emails and listen to that person's phone calls. In fact, my own view is that's an essential part of protecting our country from terrorism. So when the Intelligence Committee was considering the FISA Amendments Act last month, Senator Udall and I offered an amendment that would have prohibited backdoor searches of phone calls and emails collected under Section 702, but it specifically would have allowed the government to search for an American's communications by getting a warrant on that American or by getting an emergency authorization when you are dealing with a time-sensitive matter. So our government would have allowed, uh, our amendment would have allowed the government to search for an American's communications if the American uh, people were believed to be in danger or if for some reason the American consented to the search. It didn't pass, but just this last week in uh, the Senate, it was offered in the Senate Judiciary Committee by a conservative Republican, Senator Mike Lee of Utah. It has not you know, passed uh, yet, but I think it's an indication, again, that you are starting to see a spark of life here in the United States Senate around these issues, around a sense that it's time to step back and take a look at the constitutional teeter-totter again. You know, the Founding Fathers really got it right. They said, by way of this constitutional teeter-totter, over here is collective security, and over here is individual liberty. And as we proceed in this wonderful 
place known as the United States, keep them in balance, we'll be doing just fine. But with the government now admitting, as they did you know, last uh, week, to me that there has been a violation you know, of the Fourth Amendment uh, constitutional you know, protections, the constitutional teeter-totter is a bit out of balance. And I think that's why in the Judiciary Committee and the Intelligence Committee, you're seeing efforts to strike uh, a better uh, balance. Now, I'm sure some of you sit and say, hey, you know, they came back and redid the FISA legislation and you thought the warrantless wiretapping you know, program was over, that there was going to be a court to review all of this. Now, it is a court. It's called the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, usually known as the FISA Court. It was set up by the original FISA statute to review applications for wiretapping warrants under uh, FISA, and it's made up of federal judges. They serve uh, for fixed terms. Now, it's important to note that while this court reviews traditional probable cause warrant applications made under the FISA law, it is not charged with reviewing individual acquisitions of communications made under Section 702. It's charged with reviewing the government's procedures for acquiring communications under Section 702, whether they're reasonably designed to target uh, foreigners and exclude people who are inside the United States. The court also is charged with reviewing the government's procedures for handling any information that is collected uh, under the FISA Amendments Act and trying to determine whether what's called minimization uh, procedures are being handled uh, properly. So the court doesn't just stamp yes or no on the government's warrant applications. Sometimes they do other things. They issue rulings on what the law means. And the problem, in my view, is that unlike uh, federal courts, they operate in total secrecy, and nearly every ruling they make is classified. So normally, if you want to know how the government and the courts interpret a particular law, you just go look up the uh, case, the significant case that you care about, and you get to learn most of what you need to know. But obviously, if everything is classified the way it is in the context of FISA, that is not you know, the case here. So I have been trying to bring attention to this as well. And as I see it, uh, it's appropriate for intelligence agencies to conduct secret operations, what are in effect you know, called uh, protecting sources and methods. But I don't think the government ought to keep public laws secret. I mean, it ought to be possible when you go to your iPad and you look up a law to know that that law you're reading is what is being used to guide the government's interpretations and that there's not a big gap between the public law and how the government is actually uh, interpreting it. 
but that has, uh, has been, uh, been the case, and we have been pushing for changes here as well. In 2009, the Department of Justice and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, after we pushed very hard to get more transparency on the process, agreed to establish a process for identifying and redacting and uh, publicly releasing uh, FISA court opinions that contained legal interpretations, not matters that related to sources and methods and were important to protect, but legal interpretations. But here we are, three years after that was agreed to, and absolutely zero has been accomplished. Nothing has uh, been, no redacted opinion has been released. So that's where we are in terms of kind of the major uh, picture. And I have been trying to get the Director of National Intelligence to start declassifying some of the key statements about how the court you know, has, uh, has ruled. Uh, Director you know, Clapper, I think, is seeing that the current situation is you know, indefensible. And I think that's one of the big reasons that he sent me the letter declassifying uh, the material I asked for you know, last week. So hot off the press, finally a declassified you know, document. The FISA court uh, stating that the collection carried out under the Section 702 process, in their view, is reasonable. It is true that on at least one occasion, the FISA court held that some collection carried out under the law was unreasonable and that my judgment that the government's implementation of Section 702 has sometimes circumvented the spirit of the law. Uh, the director, Director Clapper, is acknowledging that on at least one occasion the FISA court has reached the same conclusion. So those are in the world of intelligence where you are fighting and clawing to get some measure of transparency are at least some new and uh, important facts uh, to begin with. Supporters of reviewing the FISA Amendments Act without changes continually say that the government is careful uh, about how it uses the authority, careful not to intrude on the privacy rights of law-abiding uh, Americans, but now in a declassified document based on what I got last week, the government has said that is not always the case. That is not always uh, the case any longer, and I think the public is going to say that's uh, significant. Now, I can't get in to really saying much more about secret uh, court uh, opinions. <coughs> I'll also note that the director's office uh, in the communication last week said that the government has remedied the constitutional uh, concerns raised by the court. And the court, in uh, again quoting from the letter, continue to approve the collection as consistent with the statute and reasonable under the Fourth Amendment. I will tell you my opinion that uh, the government still has not addressed the concerns that the implementation of Section 702 has sometimes circumvented the spirit of the law. And that is continuing to go on uh, today. So the question then becomes, 
where will we uh, be in terms of the fall? The Senate and committee rules regarding classified information generally prohibit members of the Congress from discussing what intelligence agencies are actually doing or not doing. I do believe that I've got an obligation to discuss what intelligence agencies should or should not be doing and what our nation's intelligence laws should or should not be doing. And I believe that searching for Americans' phone calls and emails without a warrant is something that the government shouldn't do. So I'm going to keep working to increase you know, transparency. I'm going to point to Section 702. I'm going to say the government is not saying that it can conduct these backdoor searches without you know, a warrant. But when you read the plain text of Section 702, it could be uh, happening. And that's why I think that this debate in the fall is going to be one of the most uh, important uh, in years. I hope that some of you will uh, join us in, uh, in terms of advancing uh, uh, this cause. It's why uh, when, I, when I came in, I, I said, if I'm looking for privacy hawks, I'll try to find my way to the Cato neighborhood because uh, this is um, a place that uh, has put um, great, uh, uh, great priority in these issues and making sure that people understand something resembling English, why they are so important. So I think you're going to enjoy your, your panel. Uh, with votes coming up, uh, I think Julian and I worked it out. So if uh, you wanted to ask a couple of questions, we can, uh, we can do that uh, uh, here for a few minutes. And then I better get, uh, better get out the door. Thank you, Senator. Uh, so I, I'm going to take the moderator's prerogative here and then, uh, and then see if the panelists have a question before I throw it to the audience. Um, um, so please do, uh, uh, when I get to the audience questions, wait to be called on and wait for the mic and announce your name and affiliation uh, before asking. And then um, please do try and make sure there is a question where your voice goes up at the end rather than a statement. Um, so I want to ask, actually, you know, in traditional criminal wiretaps, um, there's a great deal of scrutiny up front. So before the wiretap starts, you have a particular target who sort of confirms to be someone who uh, it's, it's legitimate for the government to be surveilling. It's always sort of been the case with intelligence surveillance that the burden of satisfying the Fourth Amendment restraints on government spying are moved to some extent to the back end, to controls on what's done with the information after relatively permissive collection. And that, uh, I think, certainly seems to be a, a trend that's growing with, with the FISA Amendments Act. Uh, and that makes us rely to an extraordinary extent on the FISA court and you and your colleagues after the fact, essentially looking at how the data has been used with relatively few restraints on the initial collection. Um, but I'm wondering, given the volume of that activity, how, I mean, it's in a sense heartening that there are particular problems that have been identified, but how confident are you that you and your colleagues have a firm grasp on what is being done with all that data? You're, you're being logical, Julian, and uh, you know, heaven, heaven forbid that logic should just break out uh, all over all over government. I'm not at all confident that enough information is known. I mean, that's why I want to keep coming back and try to fill as many loopholes as I can that look like they're 
opportunities for abuse. That's why, you know, I mentioned section, you know, 702 or the plain wording, you know, of the text. Just the plain wording, you know, of, of the text certainly suggests, in my view, the possibility of abuse and why I've really dug in on insisting that the government give us some estimate of how many uh, law-abiding Americans have been swept up under uh, the provisions of uh, the FISA Amendments Act. And we're going to really make sure that that is an important part of this fall debate for the reason that you're talking about. For example, in the early discussions that came back, and there were, we had a lot of discussions, absolutely impossible. No one could begin to have you know, an estimate. And because I can't cite numbers and the like, I was just told that you know, trying to do something like I was asking for would pretty much be the end of Western civilization. That if we were going to get some, something resembling a count of the number of Americans who'd been swept uh, in uh, under the FISA Amendments Authority, that they would have to stop doing all these other kinds of things. So we worded the language so as to talk about virtually any sort of statistical sampling you know, technique that would be appropriate so as to strike a balance between not having to, and I can't use numbers, not having to do a search of X you know, number of records and doing, you know, doing nothing. So that's the way I'm, gonna, I'm going you know, to come, you know, come back you know, at them. And I think our hand will be strengthened given what I think is this particularly uh, hard to swallow argument that giving even a ballpark you know, estimate is going to violate people's privacy. I know that a number of people who read that, when they read it and, that, and saw that that was the government's position, the first thing they said is, that's not even a serious comment. They're joking. That can't possibly be their you know, position. But it is, in fact, their position. So it's one of the reasons why we're going to stay at this you know, question of trying to gather the facts is you're saying, can you be you know, confident that uh, you have the information necessary to do, you know, vigorous oversight. The answer is I'm not at all convinced of that. So before uh, we turn to the audience, do either of the panelists want to ask? Sure. Um, Senator, you, you've stirred a lot of speculation with your past comments about these uh, secret opinions that uh, you say Americans would be shocked by if they, if they knew uh, what was in them. Um, I'm just wondering, I know you cannot talk about classified details, obviously, that come before the Intelligence Committee. But are we right? That's been sort of interpreted to mean that you're, you're concerned about some broad, expansive reading of the law rather than some specific program or operation, like the court saying, you know, it's okay to implant a chip in my head. You know, that, that rather these are broad constitutional principles. Are, are we reading that right? Or I, I can't, I can't get into anything, Eric, that goes into the details of what is in one of these secret opinions. But let me just kind of outline how I think this is going to be seen by the American people. Here we are at a time of enormous and understandable you know, cynicism you know, of government. You know, people say, well, Congress is at 8% approval or 12% you know, approval. 
Sometimes I say, you know, when I'm home, I can't find the 8%. You know, they're like in a witness protection program. I mean, <laughs> they're not there. One of the reasons that people are so unhappy, you know, about government is that they always feel that the situation is really A, but they've been told, you know, it's B. And I think on the basis of the number of times when I put the plain vanilla text of a law over here and I put the secret opinion that I know about as a member of the Intelligence Committee over there and I say there's sure a big gap you know, here, I say to myself, when the American people find out as they always have what the secret opinion is, I think they're going to be really angry. They're going to say their government hadn't been been straight, you know, with them. And I think it will contribute to public, you know, cynicism about government. And I think it does a huge disservice to the thousands of people in the intelligence, you know, community who are doing good work day in and day out, are extraordinarily, you know, patriotic. They just don't, they just want to do a good job. And if the policy of the government is really to have secret opinions that are going to undermine public you know, confidence in what the laws really mean. I think that's going to make their work that much harder. And that's why I've come to feel that uh, it's important to try to get as much sunlight into this as I you know, possibly can. I cited the fact we were supposed to start getting redacted FISA opinions sometimes a three years, absolutely nothing, you know, has come out. During that discussion, I said at length that I want to make sure that this is not about what's in effect known as sources, you know, methods. You know, you put sources and methods out, you know, on the street, people can get killed. I understand that. That's different than public, you know, laws. They're called public laws for a reason. They're not called secret laws in the United States Code in the uh, United States, uh, you know, statutes are called public laws, and I don't think you get to just arrogate to yourself the ability to make them secret because you find it uh, advantageous for your your point of view. Thank you. Um, so uh, let's go to the audience then. Uh, I know we have uh, Professor Kerry Cordero there who uh, has in the past worked for the National Security Division at the Justice Department uh, and may have a more sanguine view. Thanks, Julianne. Um, Kerry Cordero from Georgetown Law. Uh, thank you, Senator, for your... Oh, thank you. Thank you, Senator, for your thoughtful comments. Um, I have a quick comment and then a question. So the comment is, is uh, just to present a little bit of another side, um, despite the assertion here that there's no accountability, the Senate Intelligence Report um, that was issued this summer did do a good job of explaining the multiple levels of oversight that were built into the FISA Amendments Act, including the internal oversight of the agencies, the oversight by the Department of Justice and the DNI, the oversight by the FISA Court, and the oversight by Congress. Um, but my question for you, Senator, is... Can we, before we go there? Yes. The reason that I asked to have it declassified this last week is because I believe that a lot of those statements, and I don't cast malice or, or ill intent on them, were inaccurate, that there had been violations of constitutionally protected rights under the Fourth Amendment, and what Director Clapper 
said last Friday is he agreed with me. So that's why I did it. And I'm not, again, casting any aspersions on people's you know, intent and the like. I'm just stating you know, a fact. I asked that question because so many people stated exactly what you said. I didn't think it was accurate, and Director Clapper agreed with me last Friday. And so my question sort of picks up on that point, which is that um, regarding your request for the uh, statistics regarding the numbers of Americans intercepted, does your frustration arise more from the fact that the intelligence community has been unable to articulate to you as a member of the intelligence committee why they can't produce the information that you're asking for? Or are you more frustrated that they're not able to explain publicly why they can't produce that information? Thank you. I'm not sure I get the distinction. I mean, there hadn't been either in their public or private statements that you know much difference. I mean, they have pretty much said it'd be an extraordinary amount of work, and they couldn't do it, and it was too complicated and the like. And so we said, got to be reasonable. There's got to be some statistical sampling, you know, technique that would um, be acceptable for them in terms of workload and for, you know, me. And I, I, I can't get into anything. We've had discussions over classified phones just in the last few days. So I'm going to leave it, you know, leave it there. But um, I don't know how a senator can be more reasonable in terms of trying to work something out to get a statistical sample than we've been where we said, you know, kind of like Dustin Hoffman and Tootsie. You remember where he says, I can be tall or I can be short. And he wants this, you know, part. And he thought originally the part was for somebody tall. He's five foot two. And they found out that it wasn't for somebody tall. He said, I can be short. We've said that we'll go along with this kind of statistical approach or this kind of ballpark estimate and the like. There's got to be a way, if there's going to be some oversight, of having some approximation. And we've left it at that. I mean, normally when people don't want to give you anything, you suspect that it's large. And that, of course, would help us to make our case for strengthening law. I haven't even said that in, in response to Eric's you know, point again. We don't know, or Julian's question. We don't know, but I think people have a right to. Let's take one more uh, over here. Uh, or actually, yeah, I will maybe two more. I want to give Mr. Dragan an opportunity and the rest of our panel. Uh, my name is Kami Bhatt. I'm with the Pakistan Spectator. And my question is, Senator, are you being little over-concerned or even alarming about this? Uh, I'm asking this because uh, I talk all the time with the, with the, I'm from Pakistan and those people who work in the embassy or even in Pakistan and I'm very critical of them that the American diplomats who are undercover in Pakistan, they meet very powerful decision maker in Islamabad, whereas Pakistani diplomats, regardless they are ISI or Pakistani Intelligence Bureau, they cannot meet even your staff here. So I'm telling them there is a so much frustration between U.S. and Pakistani relationship because of lack of communication or because these people are unable to communicate on the Hill or with the White House or with the American administration. No one ever bothered me, oh, why are you talking with Pakistani Intelligence Bureau or why are you talking with the ISI guys? 
you know, I don't care if they tape or if they circumvent nine, uh, uh, what is this, seven or two. If I'm not afraid, why should be average American who are born and raised up here should be afraid that their conversation or their emails are being uh, uh, monitored? Thanks. Let, let's do this. I have my hands full without plunging this afternoon into the details of matters involving Pakistan and the uh, ISI. Um, John Dickus is here. Where is John? John is, um, you know, here, and you call him nights and weekends, and we'll uh, we'll try to get back to you in a responsive way, consistent with with the law. I'm not trying to be be difficult. I, I think that would be be a lot to try to take on an open session this afternoon. Why don't we take one last one, and then I'm gonna have to get yeah, out. Yeah. Before we uh, get to the rest of our panel, does uh, Thomas Drake, uh, formerly of the NSA, have a question? Senator Wyden, first I want to commend you. Extraordinary accommodation to you. You're one of a rare government official who's standing up to the secret side of government for all the abuses that occurred. Given that I was charged vindictively under the Espionage Act for in part as retaliation for having revealed the existence of a warrantless wiretapping program called Stellar Wind and the massive abuse that the NSA committed against the United States of America. I find it extraordinarily ironic, extraordinarily ironic that here we are, almost 11 years later, talking about 702, which I would say beyond just being a loophole, is really, and more than just a, a back door, it's a barn door, a barn door. What, how would you respond, given all of that, and given what I know, actually happened after 9-11 NSA and the secret agreement worked out with the White House, that the very best of American technology, the very best of American innovation ingenuity could have done both, could have absolutely honored the letter of the Fourth Amendment and FISA, and could have provided superior intelligence to provide for the collective security of this nation. That technology was called ThinThread. I used to be the executive program manager of that program. How would you respond knowing that in this country the technology existed to do both and we never, ever had to go to the dark side? I can't, uh, Mr. Drake, in an open session like this, respond, I'm sure this doesn't surprise you, to uh, discussions about a specific you know, technology. You know, generally, I, I will tell you, I have read in detail several times, you know, your comments. So I want you to know that as a member of the Intelligence Committee, I have um, reviewed what, what you've had to say. And with sort of that is two kind of caveats, and, and maybe this is, you know, one to, one to quit on. I went to school on a basketball scholarship. I desperately wanted to play in the NBA, and it was kind of a ridiculous theory because I was too small, and I made up for it by being slow. And kind of our credo was you try to leave the game, you know, with kind of one sort of shot or one kind of statement that, you know, reflects how you see this. And that is, again, without in any way referring to any particular technology or program or, you know, Eric's, uh, uh, you know, questions with respect to, you know, secret law, I continue to believe after, I guess, John, what, 11 years on the Intelligence Committee? I think 11 years on the, on the Intelligence Committee. I continue to believe 
that protecting this country at a dangerous time and protecting people's individual liberties, that these two are not mutually exclusive. I refuse to accept the basic proposition that they are mutually exclusive and you can have only one or the other. And so much of what passes for political discussion on this topic really is you know, based on that, and particularly um, for some that I've you know, challenged, the argument is, come on, Ron, you, it's a dangerous time, and, and there are great threats you know, to, to, to this country. And I've said, so stipulated. There's no question about the fact that there are great threats to this country. I just don't believe that we can't find ways to protect our individual liberty, which is why so many courageous Americans wear the uniform of the United States, is to protect those values. So I don't accept that security and liberty you know, are mutually exclusive. I believe we can, we can have both. The fact that Cato and, and Julian have been in the trenches having these, uh, these programs is just going to strengthen the hand of those of us who do believe it's possible to have, uh, have both. I know you're going to enjoy uh, Eric and, uh, and Michelle and Julian to you all here at, at Cato for saying that there's going to be a place you know, in this community where people who are privacy hawks are going to get a chance to come and discuss uh, these issues. It's a huge public service, and I appreciate you doing it. Thank you so much, Senator. Uh, and so now I'm, I'm uh, delighted to uh, throw that to our very distinguished panel for uh, some comments and remarks. We have uh, with us uh, to my uh, left, to the right, uh, Eric Lischblau, uh, Washington Bureau reporter with the New York Times, uh, and before that, uh, an investigative reporter for 15 years with the Los Angeles Times, who, uh, with his partner, uh, James Risen, uh, won the Pulitzer Prize for his uh, groundbreaking coverage of the uh, original uh, NSA warrantless wiretapping uh, story, which he broke in 2005, um, has continued to, uh, I mean, do some of the most incredible work exposing the surveillance iceberg. Um, in 2009, reporting on uh, the almost immediate um, misuse of the uh, FISA Amendments Act to uh, resulting in large-scale over-collection of purely domestic American emails and possibly phone calls. Um, and uh, again, of course, most recently, um, with the astonishing revelation uh, in uh, a recent report that American cell phone companies uh, get at least 1.3 million uh, requests from government for information about their customers, uh, you know, vastly dwarfing the few thousand wiretaps that we know are reported uh, every year. He's also, incidentally, the uh, author of an excellent book, uh, Bush's Law, which chronicles the transformation of intelligence law in the wake of 9-11. Uh, we also have uh, Michelle Richardson, who is uh, legislative counsel with the uh, D.C. Office of the American Civil Liberties Union, and focuses on uh, national security and transparency issues such as FISA, the Patriot Act, and cybersecurity. Uh, and before that, served on the uh, House Judiciary Committee. Um, so I'm uh, pleased to welcome uh, Eric Lischblau. Sure. 
Julian, thank you to uh, the Cato Institute for having me here for uh, what's already been a very interesting discussion um, with some eye-opening remarks by Senator Wyden. I'll try and keep it short because I know people probably have a lot of questions. Um, I, I would just sort of piggyback on, on one theme that, uh, that Senator Wyden hit as far as the lack of transparency. And coming at it from a reporter's perspective, I think that, um, th that it's often uh, not quite recognized and, and underappreciated the role that the media plays in forcing some of these questions into, into public light. Um, you know, our, uh, the story that uh, Julian mentioned that we did in 2005, first exposing the, uh, the secret uh, wiretapping program was sort of a, a, a huge example of that, and that followed a 13-month battle with the White House um, in, in their insisting and initially convincing our editors not to run the story. But, but that same phenomenon plays out you know, at, at lower levels all the time. Julian also mentioned the uh, story I did a few weeks ago on uh, cell phone surveillance by uh, um, law enforcement, 1.3 million requests, probably millions more. That's, that's a bottom line um, for emergency information that the cell phone carriers turn over to local police, state police, uh, the FBI, federal agencies. Um, Again, eye-opening in terms of showing how uh, systematic and, and institutionalized the use of surveillance has become. And as a reporter, I, I don't, I don't draw any conclusions. I don't weigh in. You know, is this a good thing or a bad thing? But it is certainly a matter of, of public interest and debate. Um, and uh, I think that without reporters and, and newspapers and blogs asking questions. Um, you know, Senator Wyden would be uh, uh, would be probably alone in, in raising these issues, um, because certainly the the intelligence community does not want these questions asked. Um, oftentimes, the the telephone carriers who are sort of pivotal partners in all this, um, they've usually uh, hidden behind the. the the realm of national security and refuse to discuss anything. These numbers that we got a few weeks ago are the first time that, that we've gotten any quantifiable indication of just how extensive that collaboration is. Um, and we're talking here about non-national security cases for the most part. You know, these are your standard, uh, you know, bank robberies, uh, possible violent crime, et cetera, et cetera, that has seeped down into the, um, to the lowest, smallest levels of, of police departments. Another glimpse that we had of, of um, sort of this fascinating dynamic in surveillance uh, was even more recent than that. I did a story um, just a week or so ago on uh, a, a, a surveillance program that the FDA did on its own uh, scientists, which started out as, as a leak investigation into the scientists, um, uh, into suspicions that, that there was proprietary information involving medical devices, the devices that GE wanted to use, for instance, for CT scans that was being leaked out by discontented scientists. Um, but it quickly became clear uh, from our reporting and elsewhere that, that what started out as a fairly narrow investigation quickly ballooned into uh, intercepting 80,000 pages of documents, uh, months and months of, of emails and and uh, collecting all the information from uh, thumb drives, getting screenshots to allow in real time to see exactly what someone was using, not just this initial whistleblower, but other scientists, and even compiling what amounted to an enemies list of people on Capitol Hill who were talking to these people, people in academia who were talking to these people, uh, and people in the media who were talking to these people. So that, that was a rare glimpse into how these surveillance operations actually work. We don't usually get that. and. Um, you know, not to toot our own horn too loudly, um, and I'm not talking just about the Times or, or specific papers, but, you know, if it wasn't the media 
asking a lot of these questions, uh, I think we would still be in the, in the dark on a lot of these issues. And even the, the um, sort of broad discussion that we have in Congress at sort of a theoretical level, even that would be sort of uninformed and, and in some ways impossible. So. Thanks uh, very much, Eric. Uh, Michelle? Thank you, Julian, and thank you to Cato for having this event. Um, this is incredibly timely. And to go back to something that Mr. Wyden said is that this is actually poised for action in both the House and the Senate. Uh, this is passed through all the committees of jurisdiction now without a single public hearing where the Department of Justice or the DNI was called in to account for the extraordinary powers given to them in 2008. Yet Congress is ready to vote to reauthorize these programs. Uh, the House is looking at a five-year authorization. The Senate is now looking at a three-year authorization. The problem with trying to rein these programs in is that we are trying to do so with very little information. We're judging the law by the face of the law, what's on the books, and what is the maximum authority that's been granted to the government. However, very little information has been released about how these programs are actually being used. Uh, if you told me four years ago when we were lobbying on this and fighting against the FISA Amendments Act that we would be here in 2012 with virtually no new information, uh, no hearings, uh, no data whatsoever, with Congress poised to reauthorize it, I wouldn't have believed you. Um, it's important because there is substantial debate about what the program does and what it collects. And you'll find many people describe this program as a foreign intelligence program targeted overseas that will only incidentally or accidentally or occasionally pick up Americans. And because it is targeted overseas at people who don't have Fourth Amendment rights, there isn't much concern. Uh, to the extent that Americans are picked up, there are court-approved oversight mechanisms that would minimize out the sensitive information to make sure that it's not misused by the government. However, this is not borne out by the history of the FISA Amendments Act. Um, if you go back to the original hearings through 2006, 7, and 8, uh, it was very clear when the Bush administration officials went up to the intelligence and the judiciary committees that they needed a program that would allow them to wiretap the international communications of Americans. Um, Congress sort of forced the debate about whether there could be a narrow uh, law passed that would allow the warrantless collection of people overseas, and the administration roundly rejected that and had to fess up to the fact that actually it's the phone calls, emails, texts, and other communications that land in the United States that are in fact the interesting ones that they want to follow up on. Now, there has been a lot of claims that um, Congress is doing oversight, uh, that something cabined away in the intelligence committees is enough to assure that the surveillance under this program is not violating people's rights. Um, but here's what Congress gets according to the statute. They get uh, AG and DNI reports that assess the compliance with targeting and minimization. So that is not a report on actually how they target or minimize, but whether people are following the rules that are still secret and have never been made public in 35 years of FISA surveillance. 
They get the number of persons' identities who are disseminated in intelligence reports and the number of targets later determined to be in the U.S. Here's what they don't get. They don't get the number of Americans who are swept up every year under these programs. They don't get a description of the nature of the information, whether it's the text of communications, internet records, uh, texts, emails. They do not have an explanation of who has access to the information or what they can do with it or how it may be repurposed, whether it can be used for other government decisions or prosecutions. And so to the extent that these reports are coming into Congress, they're not giving information about the meat of the program so that these members can actually evaluate whether this is something that is violating people's rights. And to put a finer point on it, um, these reports are all classified at the top secret level. And outside of the Intelligence Committee, there are only a handful of congressional staffers who have that clearance and are allowed to even see those reports and therefore explain to their bosses the implications of the votes that they are about to take. We are concerned that this has become a broad collection program, and it's certainly allowed by the face of the law. And we are concerned that the minimization and the targeting procedures are not enough to actually protect people's rights. Um, the first step should be disclosure. And to follow up on what Senator Wyden said, probably one of the most important things that can happen now is a release of the legal opinions. We now have Senator Feinstein confirming in a public committee report that there are FISA court opinions out there that rule on the constitutionality of the FISA Amendments Act and how it affects people's constitutional rights. And we now have Senator Wyden's statement that at least some of those opinions have held that some surveillance in the past has violated the law. Um, in addition, we need more information about the basic contours of the program that need not disclose sources or methods. And we need to have a debate about how to amend the law to better protect American information. Uh, FOIA's obtained, FOIA information obtained by EFF in 2010 revealed conversations between the Bush administration and House staff that vehemently opposed statutory minimization requirements. Um, so they fought tooth and nail to keep these protections out of the statute, showing how important they are to actually protect American information. I should point out that this idea of having use limitations to better protect American information was not always so controversial. It was offered as an amendment in 2008 by Senators Feingold, Webb, and Tester. And the amendment was sponsored by then Senator Obama and Senator Biden, who voted for it. Um, sadly, that amendment failed 35 to 63. But there was a very strong contingent in Congress who wanted to see further limitations on these. Uh, it, it's absolutely important that Congress do these fixes and do them now because it is unclear whether we will get court review and whether we will actually have an independent public court ever decide the scope of this program and whether it's constitutional. Um, tomorrow, the administration is expected to file a brief in our case challenging the FISA Amendments Act uh, called Amnesty v. Clapper, and it is set for a Supreme Court hearing this October on Monday, October 29th. However, four years later, we are still discussing the standing issue and whether our clients will even be able to have their day in court. 
if we are successful at the Supreme Court, this goes all the way back to the beginning, where I'm sure we'll have to litigate things like state secrets um, or executive power before we ever get a ruling on whether these programs are constitutional. Um, Thank you, Michelle. This is a, a sort of fascinating catch-22 in the legal arguments surrounding challenge to this, and the same issue arises to some extent with respect to other authorities like national security letters. Um, the argument is um, you cannot get before a judge to question whether these laws are constitutional unless you can show that you personally have been subject to wiretapping, even though uh, you know, it seems as though the collection is on a, a pretty massive scale here. Um, on the other hand, the program is secret, so we don't ever have to tell anyone that they've been wiretapped. This is in contrast to ordinary wiretapping, where eventually, if you are the target of government surveillance, you must be told about it, not while it's happening, obviously, but eventually. Um, intelligence surveillance doesn't have that requirement, so uh, hundreds, thousands, Potentially millions of people can have their communications swept into databases, and they never have to be told that this has occurred. Uh, since they never have to be told that it has occurred, under the government's theory, no one ever actually has the legal right to get a judge to rule on whether any of this is constitutional. Um, before we throw it open, I, I do actually want to ask one question to Mr. Lishplau. Uh, so in 2009, of course, you reported on um, the initial implementation of this uh, and concerns that there had been a fairly large-scale over-collection of purely domestic communications. I mean, I think, frankly, we should not just be reassured if they're only uh, on a large scale collecting our international communications. People, you know, email and, and visit the web and, and have phone conversations with people all over the world. Um, but the concern was that even that thin limitation had not been observed. Uh, and then I suppose we've, we've been reassured that that problem, whatever it was, um, has been remedied. Is this just something that you've gone back to? Are you, uh, you know, do you have a sense that that concern has been remedied at least about the purely domestic collection? It's certainly a valid question, but, it, but it's difficult to know. I, I have not been covering surveillance as much day-to-day -day, uh, as I was in, in sort of the 2003 to 2009 period. Um, just because it's, to be honest, it's faded off the, 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 it's no longer a front burner public issue, which may be sort of a sign of how um, uh, just sort of ingrained it's become. Um, so, yeah, we, we found out um, shortly after the FISA Amendments Act was passed that there had been this massive overcollection. Uh, if that were to happen again, um, and it may very well have happened in the last three years, uh, we might very well never, never know about it. Well, that's reassuring. Um, let's throw this to the audience, then. We, have, we started a little bit late, so let me uh, not necessarily uh, empty the room at 1.30 on the dot, but take about 10 minutes for questions now. Uh, my colleague, uh, John Mueller. Yes, John Mueller, uh, Cato, and Ohio State. Uh, could I ask anybody in the panel, would you give us some indication of how many terrorist arrests or convictions or trials have been caused or facilitated by FISA? And is the number significantly different than zero? <laughs> I, can, um, I can't give you exact numbers. I, I think the last, um, last compilation of terrorist-related uh, 
prosecutions at the Justice Department was somewhere in the, in the range of 400 to 500. Does that sound about right? Maybe we should consult our former Justice Department person. And I, I would imagine, we don't know exactly how many of those involved FISA, I, I would imagine that the vast majority of those did involve FISA wiretaps um, once it reached the stage of, uh, of a national security investigation. Um, and my understanding is uh, there's no information, though, that the FISA Amendments Act particularly yeah. has resulted in catching any terrorists. Uh, so to the extent that perhaps uh, surveillance under old FISA, which has a probable cause warrant, might have been used against suspects to collect information, this new program, there's no data to support it. Um, and this goes back to the scope of the program and uh, we believe that it could be used or probably is being used to do bulk collection. And it is probably not, in fact, targeted in its broadest scope against suspected terrorists. And they resisted, when they wrote this law, every effort to put that limitation in there. And so they're doing bulk collection, dumping it into databases, um, perhaps in this new NSA facility in Utah um, that's unprecedented in size and capability. Um, and later used. Uh, it's, you know, it's not clear exactly how they access that information or what they do with it, but uh, they've been unable to publicly state a single prosecution over the last four years that has resulted from collection under that program. So I think a couple things we do know. Um, so obviously there are some FISA generally related terror prosecutions. Um, we do know that over time after a sort of um, spike shortly after 9-11, the, um, the rate at which federal prosecutors declined to pursue um, terrorism-related leads um, forwarded to them by the FBI pursuant to investigations is somewhere in the vicinity of about 80 percent. So um, there's not a, a – there's, there's a fairly high rate here of, uh, of I guess, investigations that don't, that don't appear to be going anywhere. Um, we also know that about – with respect to the original warrantless wiretapping program, we were told all along this was absolutely vital – um, that it was saving lives, that it was um, critical and necessary to foiling terror plots. Um, when, in I think 2009, the inspector generals of the intelligence agencies looked back, interviewed intelligence officials, and said, what was the effectiveness of this warrantless wiretap program, which was the predecessor to the FISA Amendments Act, um, what they found was uh, essentially, A, that um, the majority of uh, intercepts under this were false leads, uh, and that intelligence officials at the FBI basically complained that they were being sent on, on wild goose chases as a result of these intercepts, and that senior officials were really hard-pressed beyond saying it's a useful tool in the toolbox to point to any concrete intelligence successes that could be attributed to uh, this extraordinarily constitutionally questionable program um, which we had been assured was justified by its, um, by its demonstrable utility in saving lives. Um, so I, I, I certainly wouldn't take those general claims at face value. Yes, sir. My name is Stephen Shore. Two brief questions. The first is on a technical matter. My understanding is that calls... Uh, in, whether by landline or by cell phone, intended to be wholly domestic, let's say calling Pittsburgh from Washington, may in fact be partly rooted overseas and therefore technically become an international call, even though the person or making it never intended to 
make in their mind was not making an international call. And my second is only the specifics I've heard today are new. I mean, th those who wanted to know have known for a decade that Ma Americans' privacy rights have been systematically violated as a consequence of the legislation passed after 9-11. But the assumption today has been, you know, if Americans only knew. But the number of Americans who really care, it seems to be a, unfortunately a minority, that those most are indifferent and some are actively would go to any length to get rid of the Fourth Amendment if they, if they gave, gave them increased feelings correctly or incorrectly of a greater personal safety. I, I think that's very accurate. Um, I, you know, my understanding is that is sort of the opposite. It's more common. That is, uh, calls uh, or, or traffic between two parties outside the United States being routed through U.S. switches. The opposite is certainly technically possible. I don't know that it's um, very common, but certainly in particular with, with Internet communications, it's very hard to predict um, the specific route any particular communication will take. And under the, you know, sort of plain black letter text of the FISA Amendments Act, um, you know, the only real limit here is that they've got to have targeting procedures uh, that are reasonably designed to, uh, to prevent the intentional acquisition of purely domestic communications. Um, you know, so the idea is that they're, they're supposed to be targeting groups or persons uh, located overseas. But if you're talking, again, about a general algorithmic collection, um, you know, the, the requirement is not that you don't ever pick up uh, you know, wholly domestic stuff. It's that you design the general procedures to avoid this and that you don't intentionally, at the time you're collecting, target uh, the party that is located inside the United States. Although, again, as Senator Wyden pointed out, part of the trouble there is if you're talking about very large-scale collection, I mean, in principle, they could say all U.S. communications with London, Pakistan, and five other countries, um, you know, that doesn't apply to what's done afterwards in terms of searching uh, the database for, for records. There may be uh, protections in place there, um, but, you know, part of the problem is, is our lack of knowledge. Uh, Michelle, did you want to elaborate on that? Um, just to say that, you know, FISA has always had a geographical component to it. So to the extent that um, your protection depends on whether you're in the United States or not, they can pay, make a pretty educated guess about whether you are or you're not, even if it's incidentally routed out. Um, that's not to say that some bad guys can thwart the system, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the regular bulk collection of international communications and that they can implement procedures um, that make a reasonable guess or a presumption that certain communications are, you know, U.S. person communications, and that's hopefully what they're doing. But, I, you know, the, there, there's no information on the outside about that. Let's take just one or two more. Madam, in the front row. Yeah, two-part question. And I think we need to remember when you have trouble with your cable or phone or whatever, and you call in the call center, you're calling India or wherever, so I'm wondering <laughs> if they're tracking my number uh, that I call from. My first question is, one, who appoints the judges to the FISA court? And I think Senator Wyden said they are term limit or something. Yeah. And how um, is this issue going to be made during this election campaign by either the presidents or senators or members of Congress who are running for the election since apparently you all can't get any, well, not you all, but 
you know, nothing's been done and you've got a Supreme Court date on a Sunday, is this matter going to be a issue in our political campaign? And a, who support, uh, who appoints the uh, judges? And when are they bipartisan? It's the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, right? Yeah. Um, so that's an easy one. Um, but the political, <laughs> politi is this playing politically? Is this, is this a live issue or is this something no one wants to talk about? Well, as I indicated before, I, I have not seen this lately as a front burner issue for, for whatever reason. Um, you know, there's been relatively little talk about um, uh, reauthorization. Um, and as, as Michelle had indicated, you know, you would think that there would be not only debate, but, but a fair amount of public information out there, non-classified information about how often X, Y, and Z is going on and things like that. And, and we've seen relatively little about front, uh, on that topic. Um, and few members of Congress seem to be pushing for it. My bet would be that this does not come up for a vote before the election and that this is pushed into the lame duck to avoid it becoming another hot-button issue right before the election. That's just a guess. I have no specific information on that. This is unfortunately an issue that seems to be in everyone's interest to just not have in play. Um, which is one reason we don't have uh, strong incentives for very vigorous oversight. Let's take just one more, perhaps, because we started a little bit late. Um, Ma'am, uh, did you wait for the microphone, please? My name is Helen Anderson. Uh, I want to ask, uh, do you think we have freedom of press in the U.S. at this time? <laughs> so that's actually you use a a, an addendum to your book that is interestingly relevant to that. Um, yeah, that's a good question, and actually I regretted not having gotten into that in my, my remarks earlier because the sort of the, the, the parallel to needing, um, you know, the, 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 an independent press to be looking at these things is that that's become more difficult to do really in the last uh, decade because we've had, um, uh, we've had a number of criminal prosecutions involving alleged leakers. Um, Tom Drake in the room was, was one of those cases. Uh, we've had more prosecutions um, of leakers in, in this administration than any other before, um, and that certainly has, you know, that ha that has a chilling effect uh, when you have subpoenas or the threat of subpoenas against reporters. When you have um, uh, government officials who are talking about information that that I think 99% of these people people in this room would say shouldn't be classified, yet is classified. There was just a, an interesting story in the Washington Post of, again about Tom's case that involved. Uh, one of the classified documents um, uh, that was involved in the case, and it was, you know, for the most part, completely innocuous. It was the director of the NSA saying, great job, guys, attaboy, you know, but this was considered classified. Uh, so when you're up against those kinds of hurdles, I think the, the um, response from, from the intelligence community in particular has been to, to raise the, the, the bars ever higher to getting information out there. Now, certainly there have been lately, especially um, in the last couple of months, there have been a couple of uh, stories, one involving uh, Iran and cyber warfare, the other involving drone strikes, which have um, uh, caused quite a bit of, of discussion on, on both ends and have, uh, again, stirred up this um, uh, debate over leakers. Um, you know, I, I, I'd argue that, uh, you know, those are both critical areas of, um, uh, of public debate and, um, you know, that it's important to free press look at those things. Actually, this reminds me, I'll just close with a very quick anecdote that uh, in my previous life as a reporter, I recall, I interviewed um, uh, an NSA whistleblower named Thomas, uh, named, uh, sorry, Russell Tice, um, 
and uh, I was asking him about the capabilities that NSA had, uh, and he said, well, I'll speak hypothetically about what we can do, and, and, and he said, so you might imagine, for example, two people having a phone conversation, dramatic pregnant pause, like the conversation we're having right now. And I had, for the first time, uh, a, you know, this sort of vertiginous experience of thinking, ah, right, this is an, an acknowledged NSA whistleblower. Of course, this conversation is almost certainly being tapped. Um, there's, you know, sort of special powers associated in particular with, with the ability to, to surveil, um, you know, source, you know internal, internal sources like that. Um, and, and it was this, this, this odd realization that there was a fair chance that this conversation was ending up uh, in a database somewhere. Uh, I, I, I suppose I can take some consolation, if you, if you want to call it that, from, um, from knowing that given the scale that it appears NSA is collecting information on, uh, I am not alone in that. And so perhaps some of you here in the audience have, have that very same privilege. Thank you all for joining us.